Okay, I've got like a lot of energy in my face right now. Yeah, are you feeling good? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling excited. Do you want to smoke? I really would like to smoke. I have nothing to smoke. Damn. I actually have been thinking about that for a week where I'm like, it would be self-care for me to go out to a dispensary right now and just get a little weed. Hannah, it's literally growing everywhere. It's hard to not have some. <laughs> I actually watched this movie maybe two or three times before we're talking about it because it was kind of me refinding it after not watching it for a while. And All right, so we're getting into it. Are we? Okay. Well, I was I was just going to say that it would have been nice on one of the watches, I think, to have a little smoky smoke. I think that would have been an interesting yeah. way to watch it once. Um, okay. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Welcome to We Live in a Film Society. We're so happy to be back. It's nice to have you here. This is a show about movies and the meaning we give them. Mm -hmm. How you doing, Sherilyn? I am doing all right. Hannah, how are you? I'm good. I feel like I am nervous to have this conversation. It's just the two of us today. It's just us. And... I'm just nervous that I have a lot of ideas. There's a lot that goes on in this movie. We are talking about... Eight and a half. Right before I said that, my throat did a weird noise. <laughs> did you hear it? Like, my mouth was open. I didn't hear it, but... I heard it, the and the mic picked, picked it, up. it up. Don't put that in. Nice. That's embarrassing. It was like... Eight and a half. <laughs> <laughs> I might leave it in. Okay. Eight and a Half, directed by Federico Fellini, 1963. This is the first black and white film we've discussed. This is the oh. oldest film by far that we've discussed. So old. So old. So crusty and old. <laughs> so crusty and old. <laughs> but honestly, so full of life. Okay. Also, Hannah, we're studying Italian. I should have introed this in Italian. Ciao a tutti e benvenuti a questo episodio de... We live in a film society. <laughs> okay, I should not have said it in that <laughs> accent. I wanted to tell everyone that I think I'm learning Italian. I realize because I want to be able to watch this movie without subtitles someday. Yeah. Hannah, give us a brief summary because like I mentioned earlier in private, I couldn't recap this movie if I tried. So why don't you do the summary real quick? Yeah, for sure. So in the broadest strokes, because there's a lot that goes on in this movie, but in the broadest strokes, this is a film about a director who is directing his ninth film, and it's a struggle creatively. He doesn't know what he wants, and throughout the entire movie, we see him going through these various trials leading up to the filming, or as we find out, spoiler alert, it doesn't get made, of this film. I don't know if that made grammatical sense, but the other big thing about this movie is there's a lot of dream sequences. The whole movie is a series of fever dreams. Yes, and... The final thing that I'll say that's notable about the summary of this film is that it's incredibly meta for anyone who is not aware. This was also Federico Fellini's, the director's ninth film, and he didn't know what he was doing, and he wouldn't give actors their lines until a day or maybe hours before shooting. There's actually 
a lot of people who have talked about the film since its production saying that a lot of the actors would be called in not knowing what they were doing that day at all. Like they didn't understand why they were called to set that day. And I think it's fair to assume that sometimes Federico wasn't even sure it was going to happen. Okay, let's just take a breath because there's a lot to talk about. I'm breathing. Sherilyn. I'm fine. I feel like I'm hyperventilating. (laughs) Sherilyn, what is your relationship to this film? Was this on your radar at all? Like, I'm a film school kid, so this was on my radar from film school. But what about you? So this was on my radar as of, like, I don't know, a few years ago. I went to a film festival in Italy and I met some people there, some like film buffs. And I remember this one girl, she took my little notebook that I had and I was using it just to like figure out my travel plans. And she took a whole page and like, wrote down all of these classic Italian films that I had to watch. And so I remember that was on the list. I'll post a photo of that notebook page if anyone's interested. I think it's cute. Dude, I'm interested. It is cute. <laughs> so it's just been on my list for a while. And uh, yeah, that's that's it. So this was your first time watching it. Yeah. So the first, <laughs> so the first time I watched it, I fell asleep because it was at home on my couch. And then the second time I watched it all the way through, baby. Was it last night? Yes, it was. Am I gonna pretend <laughs> like I know what I'm talking about? No. But <laughs> I know this is a classic, and as I'm watching it my opinion is changing drastically like constantly throughout the whole film I'm like fuck this guy and then I'm like this is beautiful and then I'm just like this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's doing and and he's a misogynist and then later I'm like oh my god her character the lines it was beautiful and I'm I still kind of feel like that yeah and uh I do think that tomorrow and in a year my opinion will be totally different so I'll tell you what my thoughts are as of this moment (laughs) that's all I can give you amazing oh my god I am so excited to have this conversation with you actually so for me this is one of my all-time favorite movies I would classify this as a perfect film oh my god what oh yeah no I I know it's it's in people's top 10 totally yeah and I think that it is a perfect film in many ways that I am more than willing to get into with you. I've seen it many times. It's one that I haven't watched it in a minute, though. Coming back to it for the purpose of talking about it on the podcast, it's interesting how it hit me differently, like what you're talking about, how after a certain amount of time, this film will hit you differently For better or worse, potentially. I think always for better, though. Every time I've watched it, I feel like I've gotten a little deeper with it. Okay, so then let's dive in. Hit me with some of your initial thoughts, Sherilyn. I don't even know where to start. So when I first started watching it, I was like, what is going on? Because it starts out in the dream sequence where he's in the car. And then the kite. The kite. So beautiful. Oh my God, amazing. It took a while to process what was actually happening in the movie because I didn't have that much context for Fellini and for this period of filmmaking. So... I did a little more research and I was like, oh yeah, of course he's super influenced by 
Carl Jung. Oh, wow. Carl Jung, the psychologist. You went in deep. (laughs) Well, yeah, because you know I love talking about dreams. Yes, same. And I'm like, why is this guy so obsessed with... This was like the original Inception. Not really Inception because it was (laughs) completely different, but I found this fun YouTube video. It's 40 seconds long and it's this Italian man. So you know how I'm really into youtube i found this weird channel i just was looking up carl young fellini because i wanted to see what would come up this 40 second video comes up from this youtube channel that only has like five videos and barely any views and it's just this italian guy talking about fellini's love for young and uh that's the title of the video can i put on my ipad and show you yeah sure i'm gonna do it so the video is titled Talking About Fellini's Love for Young. Wasn't Carl Young? Freud is explaining everything. And Fellini didn't like somebody was just explaining this is the, this why the, he liked very much Jung because he was like a, a farmer, a paysan, a paysan, a magician, who like a magician, magoon, you know. And it was taking him, everybody, Jung is somebody who takes in your hand, and till the border of the abyss, of the nightmare, of the unknown, and say, look. five words i mean yeah he's got a lot of spirit that was fun i have no idea what he said (laughs) he's like he takes you over the border so like to the edge he takes you to the edge of something in a dream and then he says look oh and then there was a don't and like in the movie it would be these intense scenarios and his like dead parents would be involved or something in the dream and then there's always something mysterious you know like in dreams when there's a mystery thing that you kind of can't look at or something and then he forces you to look at it and it's that's cool I think it's cool that Fellini likes Carl Jung yeah well Fellini has a book of dreams that actually would be a perfect gift for me if anyone ever needs an expensive gift to give me is it expensive yeah it it can be very expensive it's basically a picture book of Fellini drawing images from dreams that he's had and they're like full color and it just seems beautiful all that to say he was big into dreams in a lot of different ways and exploring them so that definitely tracks that makes a lot of sense can I read this thing that I took from the internet about him and his dreams you can do it a major discovery for fellini after his italian neo-realism period 1950 to 1959 was the work of carl jung after he met the psychiatrist and then he experimented with lsd federico experimented with lsd or who fellini yeah yeah oh So he took LSD under the supervision of his psychoanalyst during the 1954 production of La Strada. Mm. For years reserved about what actually occurred that Sunday afternoon, he admitted in 1992, which also happened to be the year that he died, I think, 
Uh, he admitted that objects and their functions no longer had any significance. All I perceived was perception itself, the hell of forms and figures devoid of human emotion and detached from reality of my unreal environment. I was an instrument in a virtual world that constantly renewed its own meaningless image of a living world that was itself perceived outside of nature. And since the appearance of things was no longer definitive but limitless, this paradisical, no, paradisiacal, oof, awareness freed from me from the reality external to myself, the fire and the rose, as it were, became one. Okay, wow. Fellini, we got it. You took LSD and you had a good time. I do love that, though. It sounds like a terrible time. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It sounds enlightening, but it sounds like a crazy way to live the rest of your existence. If that was in the 50s and he died in the 90s, to then just constantly be aware that you're just perceiving. I mean, I don't know. Is it better or worse? I don't know Wait, if I can say Wait, how did that. he die in the 90s? Did he die in the 90s? I don't know. You said that. <laughs> you said you thought he died in 92. I did. I did. Wait, let's see. 93. Okay, so he was... Okay. Yeah. Okay, okay. So obviously there's a lot of dream sequences. I am a sucker for a good dream sequence. I, like you, love dream theory. I have very vivid dreams myself. So I very much enjoy that playful imagery. The very surrealist take. It uses everything that filmmaking can do. That's why I think I like it. I mean, don't get me wrong. Realism certainly has a place in filmmaking for sure. But I think me personally, I love the pizzazz and the style that dream sequences allow. And I think he pushed in every direction what that could mean. And I think he did it amazingly. So yeah, picking up where you left off with dream sequences, I think that's a major reason that I loved this movie so much, for sure. See, now I'm kind of in the point where I'm like, oh, I did love it. So <laughs> I was virtually watching it with my friend Eric, who we interviewed for the Spider-Man episode. Nice. And Eric Wusu. Yeah, he was like sleeping the whole time. I have a video of it. It's very funny. <laughs> And then I smoked before watching it, too. I smoked Seth Rogen's weed. Oh, on a first watch, that's hard. <laughs> well, technically, I watched one half of it previously. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, but okay. it was really funny. In the first half of the movie, early on in the movie, there's the park scene. And we were still figuring out what this movie is. And we're like, why is everyone acting so funny at the park? Just kind of like frolicking through. And Eric goes, oh, yeah, this is definitely the highest day at the park. <laughs> and I thought that was really cute because it did seem like everyone was just high at the park. Wait, what park? Why Why don't I remember the Hannah, park? how are you honestly expected to remember specific scenes in that movie? There was no through line there was nothing that we could follow except for like kind of the leading up to this movie being filmed but it l seemed like it was happening the whole time too it was like the production is happening we are in production and nothing is happening yeah it was just a series of weird dream sequences that were like high anxiety everyone is asking things there was literally a scene where he had like 27 different conversations with 27 different people in the span of one minute and people would just come yeah, up yeah. to him like 
I don't know my lines, but this and that and this. And then the phone ring, sir, this person's on the phone for you. Next person comes up, they're like, oh, tell me how to do my props. It was wild. It was hard to follow. And there were so many weird scenes that were just ongoing dialogue. And it's like, they're not even saying anything that makes sense. Or sometimes it did. (sighs) Now I'm hyperventilating. I think it did make sense, but I totally feel you. I I totally feel you. I mean, I think this was a giant exorcism for him. You know, it was getting this film out of him by any creative means necessary. And sometimes that meant taking things to the silly extreme or the surrealist extreme. Was there a script in real life when they filmed this? There was a script. Yeah. I heard that there were only two scripts allowed on set at a time. (laughs) I think because he needed the ability to change, but yeah. Okay, second question. Yes. So you have experience being an AD. I do. An assistant director. Yes. If you were the AD on this set, you would have to know what scenes are going to be shot and when so that you can make sure that everyone's well so let me say normally when i'm in ad i work with very low budget indie situations or it's a commercial situation which means time is fucking money and you better believe that the client is going to be on set and has certain expectations right So in those instances, normally, yes, I would know what every single day of production looks like, potentially down to the minute, because we're trying to almost do surgery. We have to go in there, know exactly what we're trying to get out, and then move. Okay, but this movie... That would not be how I would be able to function. They had a soundstage, and then they had the outdoors, and then they had a house and a museum. And so many different weird random locations. Yeah. And also it was like, it was really beautiful. A lot of the outdoor locations were really beautiful. Yeah, they were. Okay, let's move on over to some dialogue talk, shall we? Yeah, sure. (laughs) No? No, go for it. Yeah. This movie had so many different accents. There were... Mm -hmm. Lots of cool accents. Obviously, Italian was spoken, but there was Italian spoken with American accents and with French accents, and it was cool to hear all the different accents. Yeah, totally. And I want to bring up, is it on your radar why Italian filmmaking dubs everything? No, but I know some Italian film people have complained about it, but why? Oh, interesting. So Italian filmmaking... They would shoot it in Italian, but then they would dub it again in Italian. So many times the actors that you see would have different actors doing their voices. So, for example, even what's her name? Cardinale, the very pretty girl who was at the fountains and then comes back as the actual movie star. Mm -hmm. This was the first movie where she got to dub her own voice. I was wondering, I was like, she's speaking Italian on her lips. Yeah. And the Italian that I'm hearing is not matching the lips, though. So that was interesting. Yeah. It's because uh, she dubbed it. But why do they do that? Because of sound? Yeah, I think it's fascinating. It was because Italy had such a foundation and infrastructure for filmmaking that did not take sound into account 
cue the sirens in my sound. And so when sound became a thing in filmmaking, instead of uproot basically all of their stuff that wasn't built to be soundproof, they just decided to keep going with it and then dub their movies later. So it's become an art form that has, I guess, become a tradition. I mean, less so nowadays, I think, contemporary film, but for so many years when sync sound did exist in filmmaking, it did not exist in Italy. Anyways, I thought it was fascinating that the actress Claudia Cardinale, for the first time in this film, got to dub her own voice for so long. As I understand it, her voice was considered too rough and sultry, so they would always use an actress with a lighter, more, I guess, melodic tone. Hi, per che? Yeah, exactly. Non lo so perché no. <laughs> Ma dove posso trovare il bagno? <laughs> Where would one find the bathroom? That's funny. Okay. I'm not as far along as you, but oh. I think my comprehension is pretty good. I'm glad you think I'm far. Oh, you're farther than me for sure. Last thing I will say about the dubbing is I do think that for the sake of this movie, I think it worked in a really dreamy way with the dream sequences. It didn't bother me. I really enjoyed that aspect, even stylistically, even if it wasn't consciously the stylistic choice. It was just the the norm. It was just what what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it didn't bother me either. I, I was neutral towards it, but it's really cool to know that background. Did you catch the silhouette? There was a dance moment that is also the famous Pulp Fiction silhouette where they're dancing. Hell yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. And so Pulp Fiction got that inspiration from Fellini. Yeah, that's right. That was cool. His friend who's having his own version of a midlife crisis is dancing with his really young... Is she American? I think she might be American in the film. There were a lot of women in this film, even if they were being objectified. Yeah, let's talk about that. How did you feel about the characters? How did you feel about how it was handled? I mean, what can you expect from a man in the 60s talking about his subconscious? There's literally a dream in the movie where he's whipping all the women. (laughs) And everyone's like, ooh, ah. (laughs) And it's just like, okay. The Barbara Steele character, Gloria, the young actress who was dating the friend, She does look like she's enjoying it. I think she's the only one that looks like she's enjoying it, but she does kind of look like she's getting some sort of sexual pleasure out of it. Yeah, a couple of the women did. He's in this brothel with all of the women from all stages of his life, and they're all taking care of him. It is the most extreme version of the male fantasy of regression. The male fantasy of regression. Tell me about that. So it's this idea he's a grown-ass man, but all of these (laughs) women are taking care of him as if he were a child. Mm. They're taking care of all of his needs. They even wrap him in the blanket like they did when his dream flashback to when he was a child. When he was little. Yeah, it's just this idea like he wants to be back in that place where he doesn't have these responsibilities and he doesn't have to take accountability for his actions you know don't we all Fellini don't we all just want to be held and cradled like a little baby boy 
someone interpreted that as Fellini wanting to unlearn and get a second chance in his childhood. Mm. Yeah. And then when they start to uprise against him because they're not being treated well, that's when he all of a sudden has this Indiana Jones lion whip and it becomes a circus. It's like chaotic, but he's not actually hurting anyone, I think is what you're saying. (laughs) Well, yeah, physically, I guess they don't show that part because it's also just a dream and it's abstract and whatever but it's hard to watch I mean this is this is the part where I'm like hopefully this part of my opinion changes but it's just hard to watch men process their misogyny and I'm not entertained by that I mean just go to therapy (laughs) I'm glad that it's being processed and talked about and even though he is the main character and literally women are taking care of him all these women want something from him it's still kind of just about him processing the relationships with all of the women in his life yeah it's just misogynistic and that's not to take away from like the beautiful parts of it because his wife in the film they have a really great conversation where she just fucking tells him like i can't believe you can lie to yourself like this all the time it must be difficult to be a liar (laughs) and how do you sleep at night she calls him out on all his bullshit and he kind of takes it so that was satisfying but it's still i don't know yeah it's a lot to process i'm gonna jump in yeah So I don't know if I would call it misogyny. I don't think he hates women. Certainly that dream sequence, there's a lot to unpack. And I don't mean to forgive his behavior because there is definitely something going on there. But I do think that there's enough of a self-awareness that it becomes an interesting conversation for me so like when it is so clear that we're in the dream and we see his wife Louisa and she is the mother figure who's just walking around and taking care of the house and is so happy to be at his beck and call watching it this time I feel like there was a sadness there yeah there's a lot of sadness a lot of this movie like made me feel sad and and bad for him and yeah bad for the people around him I think he's a bit tortured about how he has these expectations of these women because in his dream he sees that they are rightfully calling him out on this bullshit and that what he wants is unreasonable and he has to be the center of the tension I mean I think we're kind of seeing some some self-hatred or loathing that goes on there that he has these needs and that part of him is not ever going to be fulfilled and that he has to use these women you know it's interesting I've heard people talk about Fellini before and they say he has this way of picking people into his orbit he like has a way of bringing them into his world Mm -hmm. and then kind of throwing them away once he's done with them and I think a big part of the film that stood out to me this time was I think a bit of his remorse that that's how he functions because it's not sustainable to live like that. Yeah. At the beginning of that uh, statement, you said you don't think that he hates women. And I don't think that he 
knows he hates women. I think that he's just kind of sexist, you know? Well, I honestly think on this particular viewing, what stood out to me more so was narcissistic tendencies. For sure. Well, then this is just an argument about what we think sexism and misogyny are. I think it's not a bad word. Like implicit racism and sexism, I think it's something that... No, I don't think it's a bad word, but I do think that the actual definition of misogyny, correct me if I'm wrong, is someone who hates women, right? I don't know. Let's see. It's not even just that they think women are lesser than men. It's that there's a hatred. (sighs) Yeah. Hatred or mistrust of women. Hatred, contempt for, or prejudice. Yes, yeah. but I think he he does have women in his life that do keep him accountable. Like Rosella, right? She's Louisa is the wife's best friend. And she also is the one that's talking to him. Remember when everyone goes up the scaffolding to check it out that one night and he stays down on the ground and she's talking to him and he's actually being honest with her and she's like the Jiminy Cricket to his Pinocchio which I also think is kind oh, of interesting. Oh she said that. But, oh yeah she said that. That was her line. And I think he does trust her and I think when he's a young boy I think we feel the love that he has for his caretakers. Yeah I think he can love his caretakers. Well so all I'm saying is even if he's sexist I don't think he's misogynist. I think that's the point that I'm trying to make. But okay that's your opinion. I respect it. I disagree with it. If I'm dealing with internalized misogyny and everyone else is, it's not shocking to me or it's not impossible for me to believe that he also is dealing with internalized or explicit misogyny, you know? Like, that's not far-fetched, I think. I guess for me, I saw the self-hatred more so in this version than the hatred for women as a group and I also think he had similar reactions to the men in his life I didn't notice that it was women specifically that got this treatment I think that's the only reason it's not on my radar the same way there was also when they were auditioning when they were auditioning a bunch of different women oh the screen tests yeah that was annoying and it's funny because like they kept shushing that the only other woman that was sitting with the producers i mean there was a lot of sexist shit throughout the movie well it's a different time and it's also a different place it's a different culture you know i think i'm trying to close it out by saying look it was sexist and that's fine because that's how women deal with sexism in the world we just take it and we're like okay thank you and then we go i don't think the women said okay thank you in fact claudia cardinale calls him out like she's supposed to be his answer in the film and then she literally is proving that she's not and she's telling him you don't know what you want and he's like yes i do i just have to figure this out and she goes you don't know what you want and he goes you don't know anything about it i'm just making this movie and do you want to be in it or not i think that if fellini were alive and i know i don't know him that well I know I just got to know him, but I think if he were alive, he would agree and be like, yeah, I can see that at the time, that's how I was processing my internalized misogyny. 
And I'm not saying that that's what the whole theme of the movie was. Are we agreeing aggressively? I think so. I think I recognize, yes, and I agree. It is him dealing with his sexism in that particular scene for sure. But generally, I think he had a pattern of using people and throwing them away. I think he had a pattern of seeing himself in the center of the drama, so to speak, especially significantly in this movie because it was all about his struggle to produce this project, right? So like, I'm not disagreeing with you that it was sexist, I agree. But I don't think he's misogynist and I don't think that the women just took it and I don't think that the movie itself is sexist. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yes. The priests, when he's a little boy and he's being punished, I don't know if you noticed, but those were all elderly women and not men, which is historically inaccurate. No, it didn't. Yeah, and they were playing men and the idea that Fellini had he thought women of a certain age might have the features he wanted for the priest who he thought should seem I think to a certain extent lifeless like no sex drive they had nothing going on for them outside of whatever so it's just speaking of sexism and the world he grew up in that is definitely a nod to the idea that You know, women of a certain age stop having lives because they stop being desirable and thus stop having value. And so they themselves lose their own self-value in their life. I love it. We love this positive spin on life. (laughs) Love this positive spin on being a woman and being less desirable. There's one more practical option to that that I'll put in there just in case. There was also the idea that women would be more willing to take the small roles than men. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I said, we're taking breadcrumbs where we can get them. Yeah. Thank you, Fellini. Okay, I'm just kidding. Jesus. Thank you. I think one thing that I really kind of latched onto was even though the dream sequences were so fantastical, I was still really impressed at how natural and realistic all of the characters were and how they interacted. I think there was a realism to that that I thought was done extremely well and is more in the vein of classic Italian neorealism filmmaking, which is trying to take people and film them in a uh, narrative setting but have it feel as real as possible that's what italian cinema was known for and actually this movie when it was first kind of in pre-release form and critics had heard a little bit about it and maybe seen it it was not the masterpiece that it is today what did people say well fellini for one was called a traitor to Italian neorealism because this was probably the biggest departure from that not only for his career but for all of Italian cinema up until this point which was a big deal I guess and people didn't get it or like it and 
some of the other things that they said, they thought it was gross self-exhibitionism and some people thought that it was beautiful, but like you thought that he should have left his neuroses on the couch, so to speak, with his psychiatrist or whatever. So yeah, that opinion definitely, definitely existed in the world for sure and still does, obviously. It took time for the love of this film to blossom, let's say. Yeah, it must have been so wild for its time. Also, I don't know if that was considered long at the time. I'm sure people's attention span was much better (laughs) back in the day, back in the early 60s. But some of those scenes lasted such a long time. And I love it. I wouldn't change anything about the movie because I think it's such a time capsule. Like the way that they use the film back then is, is really interesting to me. Like... Did they just put the whole marching band scene, even though it was incredibly long at the end, did they just leave the whole scene in because it took them a really long time to shoot and they got too much footage, but it all looked great, so they kept it all in? It's so hard to imagine like what the behind the scenes is for this movie. I think about what it must have been like to be a PA or something back in the day and like how that would work. It, they just give you a list of things to buy and you have to roam around... Room. You have to roam (laughs) around the whole town looking for these random specific objects, those fancy batteries that are needed. I mean, I think it's like interesting to think about what filmmaking was like back in the day. It's probably similar in quite a few ways, but I don't know if that's one of them, but that's pretty funny to think about. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, who knows? About the length of the movie, though, and it feeling long. Of all the times I've watched this movie, this is the first time that I didn't think it felt long. I think it made more sense to me for some reason. But every other time that I've seen this movie, I've sort of braced myself for how long it feels. And there was always this point in the movie where I would get fatigued and I would wonder how much longer. But like you, I wouldn't change anything about it. I feel like it's all intentional and all has some purpose for what he's trying to get out of his mind. But that said, it always did feel long to me as well. It was only on this viewing that it felt like I didn't think about the timing of it. I feel like I'm going to get hate from our two Italian listeners. I don't know. Maybe they agree with you. Yeah. Well, like I said, my opinion is constantly changing and evolving, just like the world we live in. Indeed. And just to also comment on that last scene with the band, and it's kind of like a circus ring. Fellini did at one time say if cinema didn't exist, I would have likely been a circus ringleader because he thinks a lot. Don't I say that all the time? Well, when you say you'd join the circus, I imagine you would be someone on the silks or like one of the acrobats. But yeah, I did think of you (laughs) when I read that about him. Wow, Fellini and I have more in common than I thought. Yeah, he thinks that a lot of the same skills are used and you're still moving life across the stage, so to speak. Okay, let's talk about themes because I think that there's a lot of interesting themes in this film. One that I'd be interested to go in a little deeper with is this theme of critics versus artists. That was kind of shining bright for me this time because I started Artist's Way again, which for any artist out there, I highly recommend picking up The Artist's Way by Julie Cameron. Okay, 
So yeah, this idea of critics versus artists, multiple times Fellini is showing how he resents the intellectuals around him. For example, the one guy, he brought up some sort of critique or whatever when they were watching the casting reels. He makes some comment about how it's not going to be accepted or people don't want this or whatever. And playfully, Guido makes kind of a move with his finger and then two guys take him away to be executed. But like, obviously, that was not real because just a moment later, he's back there. But it's just an internal struggle and an external struggle that artists always face. This idea that like the critic was saying, you know, if only artists would learn to be silent when they don't have something that's worth creating or putting out there what if they just didn't make the shitty stuff or whatever and after guido had committed suicide which in my mind was him committing suicide to his artistic career by backing out of making the film the critic was like oh you did the right thing it's better to not make anything than make something bad in the artist way, literally, the book that I'm doing, it's like that's what keeps people from creating stuff. And I think that that's a huge detriment yeah. to what art requires of people. It requires you to make stuff and it requires that you make bad stuff just intrinsically. The idea is that you are creating and you're not letting this outside critique censor you or shut you down I mean that's how you get blocked that's how you get too self-conscious to create anything and if you're not creating anything then you're not growing as an artist and who knows even though some people hated this movie for whatever reason even if it was disturbing or offensive or not interesting on some level for them it was for other people. There's still a lot of interesting insights to be gained from this in technical ways and in other ways, I think. And I feel like the end of the movie was him finally deciding that what the critic, what his intellectual writer friend was saying was not what he wanted to believe and all of a sudden when he freed himself from needing to make something good he could just make something and that's what that final scene I think was boom yeah anyways that's what I was saying about this being sort of an exorcism for Fellini it seems like the birthing process for this particular film was so painful that the catharsis is he wasn't able to finish it until he finally let go of what it needed to be yeah I definitely picked up on that too and I think that that's what makes it such a brilliant film even though I liked Guido Fellini's avatar the least in this viewing even though I was the most critical of how he treated people of how he maneuvered through these different scenarios even through all of that, what made it a brilliant film, I think, was the cathartic process. We were seeing that in real time. It is a movie that so brilliantly displays the artist's struggle. I think that that's truly what it is. And then this one particularly was Fellini's artist struggle. So his issues, like his relationship with women and to himself and 
to getting old and to physical beauty and all of this stuff. He's aware of all of it. That's what he's dealing with. And I think you don't have to take that or whatever as every artist's struggle. But the creative process struggle, I thought, was universal for sure. Definitely, especially having fever dreams about it. At least yeah. in my experience. Yeah, yeah. Fellini as a character, just in real life, it seems like it was that je ne sais quoi. He had some sort of energy that pulled people into his orbit. And I think that that's probably also a big sign that he was a narcissist. Yeah. But I've heard people talk about him who knew him in interviews and stuff. They have said that people loved being used by him. They loved feeling potentially like they were part of something bigger than themselves. And certainly through all of the anecdotal stuff I've heard about Fellini as a person, he had a way of making you feel like he knew you. And I think he understood human behavior on a very intimate level. He was able to read people very well, which I think interests a lot of people, especially those who don't know themselves or want to be seen or et cetera, et cetera. You know, a lot of these actors were on call for him for this movie. Like the lady with the snail hair, the poor actress mm -hmm. who's just like, what is my role? I just, I want to participate. I want to prepare. I have other offers, but I want to do this. That was a lot of the actors on this set, actually. They wanted to be used by him. All of these people, in more ways than one, wanted to be used by him so they could be part of what was going on. Yeah. For better or worse, I mean, it's fascinating. <laughs> I don't think it's healthy, yeah. but I do think that it sheds more light on how this movie and these characters kind of float the way they do in the story. Yeah, I probably would have been a hoe for Fellini back in the 60s. Especially if he looked like Marcello Mastroianni, right? <laughs> I didn't say that last name right, but Marcello was damn sexy in this film. And they had really great sunglasses. Everyone had really good glasses and sunglasses. It was... Oh, yeah. The 60s, so the style, the fashion... It was the 60s in Italy, which for a lot of us is the culture capital of the world. <laughs> yeah, they were stylish as hell. It was so good. And they were all just like elite people with money and stuff, so... yeah. I'd like to get your take on one thing. Yes. I don't know. Maybe it'll be an interesting conversation. And if not, we'll take it out. So Fellini at one point said that love, sex, friendship, and marriage are all disconnected. What he means by that in my mind is that they are all mutually exclusive. You don't find sex and friendship. You don't find marriage in love. You don't find friendship and love like all of these different things that are separate mm -hmm. I don't know if he thought that all of his life but I do think that those ideas definitely surfaced in the telling of his relationship with these various women for sure what was the quote I don't know if it's a full quote but generally the idea is that love sex friendship and marriage are all disconnected yeah I mean it sounds like <laughs> I feel like societally, we've been so constricted 
in how we can express our love for so long. If it's gay marriage or interracial marriage, like a lot of these things were like illegal and frowned upon. I think that we just as a species have intimacy (laughs) issues and I think religion has a lot to do with it and I know Catholicism is a huge theme in this movie. There's so much shame Mm -hmm. involved with relationships with people of the opposite sex or just any sexuality at all yeah any sexuality when he was a boy and he went to go see what's her name that woman dancing with all the little boys watching the the woman dancing that was so funny yeah that was great it was kind of cute because it was like kind of harmless yeah but yeah there's so much shame and guilt involved in like the feelings of love and intimacy that I think we have put such almost like impossible like constructs and barriers around like what we define a relationship to be and a friendship to be and uh yeah hopefully if he were alive today he wouldn't feel that way because it seems like a shitty way to love yeah I think it seems cynical yeah and like don't get me wrong I can be pretty cynical sometimes but I at least don't feel that that's true I certainly don't feel that it's true at all (laughs) I'm definitely a contemporary in the idea that love sex friendship marriage intermingle frequently I don't know if that's contemporary but certainly I don't agree with him but I also see why he thinks that because Sarah Gina was, first of all, did you know that it's like a sardine <laughs> because she went oh. out by the sea? I think that it, it's like some no, sort of cute. little fish or something. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. But yeah, it's like he didn't have any sort of relationship with her that was sex, lust, and same with his mistress who he invites out there. And we are given all these clues to the fact that immediately he regrets that she's there because now he has to attend to her and give her attention and when she asks him straight up he lies because he's a coward and he doesn't know how to handle the situation right yeah there's no friendship there that is literally just sex and he even almost turns her into La Saragina when he puts those eyebrows on her when he's telling her to look more slutty (laughs) when they're doing their role play thing yeah And then like his marriage is literally a marriage and that's it. They are married. He seems like maybe he feels like he has to respect her to the extent that she's his wife, but there's no friendship and certainly it's loveless and they sleep in separate beds. So there's no sex. And you know, speaking of what her role for him was, when he has that dream sequence in the graveyard and he sees his dad and all of a sudden his dead mom is there too and she brings him in for a smooch on the lips that was kind of disturbing to see and then she pulls away and it's his wife i was like whoa that Mm -hmm. is for real he married his mom he married someone who would take care of him what he saw that role to be. And if Esther Perel has taught me anything, mm-hmm. it is that when those relationships gets mixed up like that, it ain't sexy. Yeah. No one wants to have sex with their parents. Ew, don't say that. I just think that there's a lot going on there. And certainly the friend 
Rosella, his Jiminy Cricket. That was a friendship that seemed like a true friendship, but he wasn't in love with her. There was no sex and they weren't married. Yeah. I'm actually looking forward to watching this again in the near future. In the future. Not sure how near. I think whenever you're ready, I think it's one of those movies where every time you go back to it, something new will unfold for you, either thematically, visually, anything. Something in the story, like you said, it didn't really make that much sense to you. For me, this last time, I felt like the narrative made the most sense it had ever made for me, you know? Yeah, that's one thing that was, I think, the hardest to follow first was the narrative. I was like, oh, this is like an abstract thing with no narrative. And then I was like, oh, wait, there is kind of a narrative. Once you have the structure of Guido's the director Mm -hmm. and he's struggling to make this film and this movie is just him in pre-production agonizing and like continuing to push production because he doesn't know what the story is kind of thing, then all of a sudden everything else just kind of falls into place. Wow, it's so meta. It is. It's it's so significantly meta. meta. Yeah, no kidding. That moment when Louisa leaves at the end of the, or I guess during the screen tests, initially Guido was scripted to say, don't leave, I need you. Basically pleading with her again to kind of, you know, see reason and come back to him. But you'll notice last minute Fellini changed it to the line like, come on, Louisa, cut the drama. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because, yeah, that's what he, I remember when he said that, I was like, her drama? (laughs) You're the drama. Yeah, well, it's him pushing it on to her. You know, it's him not taking responsibility. And she called him out for it so many different times, you know. It was annoying because it's like, okay, so he's aware. He's conscious. He's self-conscious. Yeah. And he's showing us that he is but he's definitely still processing a lot of it right yeah this this movie definitely does not wrap that up in a way that makes you feel like he knows where to take it yeah there's no happy ending there's no like ah this is the lesson and i have learned it unless you consider the lesson being the artist versus the critic thing that I brought up earlier because then in that case he did succeed ultimately I mean there are so many different things that you could choose to take away from this yeah and that's definitely one of them I think that's why this movie is considered one of the best is because I came into it saying look I don't know how I feel about this all I know is how I feel about it right now and that's still how I feel about it but It's evolving and it's changing and hopefully it makes you think about these things throughout your life and you're thinking, am I being sexist? Am I being narcissistic? Or am I just being too harsh of a critic on myself? Am I stopping myself from creating? Or should I just not put this onto other people right now? You know, think about these things. Thanks, Fellini. I think I hear what you're saying. I tend to agree. I don't know if it's his job to teach us what to do when we recognize that behavior in ourselves. Just as a new thought, I don't think that that was necessarily his job to teach us how to be better people. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I know that there's a lot of artists out there who do want to use this medium to spread positive messages and create new scripts for our society. And I think that that is important. And and I think filmmaking is an amazing tool to spread good information to a lot of people in a way that promotes empathy and promotes understanding and enjoyment because that's a big part of learning lessons. But also, I don't think that's what all art needs to be necessarily for it to be valid and valuable. Yeah, I agree. As long as it's not destructive, I would say. As long as it's not harmful. As long as it's not perpetuating harmful. Right. And I think for me, eight and a half, his self-awareness was, I think, apparent enough for me that... I don't believe that he was unknowingly showing this abuse of women or just people in general. I think he was very aware of it. And that self-awareness and the self-loathing that I felt from the character and all of his anguish throughout the film, I, I don't think that it was adding to that side of the scale, so to speak. I think it was a recognition of it and an exploration of it. I don't think it was propelling it further. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good take. Yeah. Should we get into our our final thoughts? I mean, we can't, these have been our thoughts, (laughs) but I do feel like we're coming to the end. I agree. How about you start us off with final thoughts? (laughs) Oh, don't push this on me. Okay. Uh, final thoughts. I don't know if anything I've said made sense, but you know, I did my best. Maybe. (laughs) Overall, I enjoyed this and I got a kick out of it being like as weird as it was. I definitely got a kick out of the dream sequences and the fun camera movements and the fact that it was this dramatic piece of work I love that it was in black and white like I said my feelings are changing and evolving every day on this film I will probably watch it again in like six or seven months just to see where we're at um but yeah I overall enjoyed it and and honestly I'm probably going to read more about Fellini and his obsession with Carl Jung that's my favorite part I was going to say a dumb fun fact that uh, Fellini is where we got the word paparazzi. Did you know? Oh, I didn't know that he invented the word. I don't know if he invented the word, but that's where we got the word from one of his films. Oh, shit. And the actual word is paparazzo is one, and then plural is paparazzi. That part Duolingo did teach me. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so this episode was brought to you by The Artist Way and Duolingo. (laughs) I don't use Duolingo anymore ever since I lost my streak. Oh, damn, that really broke you. It broke me. I get it, though. And you know, I lost it on the day of the election because I was too busy. I was like, I'm not going to look at my phone because all I'm going to do is scroll on twitter and update the vote count and it's not nobody's gonna know we're not gonna know until a couple days anyways so i avoided it 
boom, I lose my 100-something-day streak. So you know what I did? I took my money to Pimsleur, and I said, give me your finest courses on Italian. And so I've been doing Pimsleur ever since. And they're not tracking your days the same way? No. Now I'm just trying to do a lesson every day, a 30-minute lesson. Nice. Do you have anything else you want to say, Hannah? Hannah Montana? I love this movie. I still love this movie, even if this time I decided I don't really like the main character officially. I think it's okay to have an anti-hero, and this movie means so much to me and my artist's journey and in terms of the level of something I would like to make someday. Also, the dream sequences. Like you said, the imagery is just out of this world. I love it. I love how inventive it is. And I think all of the themes, there's so much that we didn't get into on a deep level. I know. There's too much. Maybe we'll do another episode. We honestly (laughs) could. Like his identity with Catholicism and like the role that played in his life. And there's so much that we didn't get to touch on. This, This movie is so dense with so many goodies. Even if they're not fun to look at or handle or watch all the time, so many of them are. And even when they're not, I feel like there's still potential for meaning to be derived from them in a positive way. I love this film. And um, yeah, I think I probably will forever. I just think it's worth your time. If you're considering watching this and you haven't yet, I just think it's it's worth it. I agree. It's on HBO Max. It's on the Criterion. It's on YouTube, probably. Just get out there and get yourself a little Fellini. A little Fellini eight and a half. Eh? <laughs> okay. All right. How would you rate it, Sherilyn? I would rate it a solid three out of three psychology visits. <laughs> And I left. That's great. I left two of them crying. Oh, God. (laughs) But one was happy tears and one was sad tears. And then the last one I left laughing maniacally. (laughs) Maniacally. Damn. So that's what I rate this movie. Three out of three fun different psych visits. Hey. Oh, boy. Psychoanalyze this. I think after this viewing, I mean, I guess if we're talking about therapy, yeah. Why not? Three out of three psychology visits. And it doesn't mean anything good or bad. It's just neutral. Because this move is also like kind of existential. It's extremely existential. And we didn't, there's, like I said, yeah, there's too much to get into. DM Hannah your opinions. And then you guys can talk on the phone for hours about this film. You guys can three-way call me. And then I'll just be like, yes. Okay. We gotta end it. I'm feeling silly. Ciao a tutti. Grazie mille. Thanks, everyone, for listening. That's it for our show today. Let us know what you thought. We want to know your thoughts on Instagram at We Live in a Film Society or on Twitter at Live Film Society. Ciao. Ciao tutti. Grazie mille. <laughs> okay. Grazie mille. What does that even mean? Uh, All right, bye. I love it. We're just inventing words. It's over.